Well, my name is Ben Springer, and I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Noonan, Georgia. And so greetings uh, to you, Berean, from Emmanuel Baptist Church of Noonan. I've been there uh, just coming up on two years uh, in September. September 11th is the church's anniversary service, and it's also the anniversary uh, that we have with the church. And um, we're asking God for 52 more. And some, I pray that I was trained, prepared to go to one place for the rest of my life. And uh, my pastor believed that uh, success is, it is going the right way a long time. And he desired to instill in that, that in me. I'm thankful for a, a pastor here who's living that while so many pastors and church planners, they come and they go out of this state. Uh, it takes men who are willing to applaud for a long time. I'm thankful for your pastor. Uh, but if you could pray for us, we in many ways, are doing a revitalizing work of the church there. And God has given us just a sweet and a wonderful people to do that work with. And he's really moving in us. Um, it, this year has been, by and large, the hardest year, uh, likely, of ministry that I will ever face in my life. In April, uh, three of our members, a, uh, an older couple and their grandson, who ran a gun range just down the road from us on I-85, they were... Uh, shot and killed in a triple homicide, and uh, 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 their son and the young man's father is the county coroner, and he's a deacon at our church, and he's a wonderful man. He's respected uh, across the state for his walk with God. Um, we're we're grieving, we're hurting, and some some ways numb. Um, it's hard. But in, in all of this, I was telling Dad the other day, um, I, God was just, I could, we could write a book thicker than war and peace on all God did and all God is doing through this season of our life. Um, but right before the, the funeral, there were probably five to 600 people from the county just by nature of Richard's job and work and um, by, just by nature of the people that the county lost. Um, and it was very, I'm a young pastor, and that's quite intimidating. I was in a large church building across town, and I snuck off to a dark Sunday school room just to pray and clear my head and seek to hear from him. And I've just, as you would imagine, a thousand thoughts running through my head and, uh, in that moment. And I just didn't feel like I was getting anything. Right before I walked out, it's like in the deep recesses of my soul, I just remembered what God has already preserved for us to know and understand. He said, I am. And that's been it. He is. And he is for you as well. So if you pray for us that God would help us through this season of life and that the fruit that he wants to produce in us through this time will be produced. We want that. Uh, Richard and Donna are... Hawk are my dear uh, friends, and they lost their 18-year-old boy. He just grad, or he was about to graduate from high school, and of course, Richard lost his parents, and very difficult, very challenging. And just trying to love them and love people where they are, but at the same time, we must move forward. We must move forward. We will go on, and so we are thankful for that. But I, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for you, uh, Berean Baptist Church, for your love for. My family, it's good to see that dad and mom are in church tonight. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm grateful for your love for them sincerely, and I'm grateful for your pastor and uh, wife and staff and um, just all the love you've invested into my family and, 
and really shepherding them uh, through different seasons of their life. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to have my little sister here and her husband, and I love them. I'm grateful for them, and uh, looking forward to meeting my uh, nephew, Charlie, here in the distant, or in the not in the, well, she prays not the distant future in the near future, but I'm grateful for you, grateful for the Missions House, and uh, this second time we've been able to stay there um, because of a wedding, and we're very grateful you've made that available to uh, the gospel servants, and it's been quite a blessing and a rest and refresher to us. So, Matthew chapter 21, if you would, we're going to start there and hold your place in John 15. So if you want to go to John 15 and bookmark John 15 and then go to Matthew chapter 21. Now we're from Georgia, and so if I use Georgia references, you're just going to have to forgive me tonight. Um, But more exciting than a Georgia Bulldogs or Atlanta Braves victory parade, which they had recently, was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And at the beginning of this chapter, he rode into town on a donkey, which it was not a war horse. It was a sign of peace. It was a fulfillment of ancient prophecy of God's salvation for his people. And if you recall, the multitudes hailed him Hosanna, which would have been, O save, son of David, the Messiah. And the whole city were drawn or was drawn in amazement to Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. Now, this was the week of his death. It was the week he would give his life a ransom for many. The week quickly escalating to the most historical events, or most, I'm sorry, most important historical events of man, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But for all the evil to happen to God's Son, the conflict that has been unfolding in the Gospel of Matthew between Jesus and the Jewish establishment, it had to reach its climax. And Matthew 21 through 23 is a look at the public confrontation of God's people, the Jews, by Jesus. And we're not going to work through all three chapters tonight. And all God's people, no, we're not going to put you in that position. But we're going to go ahead and pick up after Jesus' triumphal entry in verse 12 of Matthew 21. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written. And notice he said it to those who were making merchandise of God's people, but also those who were buying the merchandise. He cast them all out. All of them who had commercialized God's house. He cast all of them out and he said, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, Well, they were sore displeased. What does that mean? They weren't too happy about it. They were ticked off. And they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, I do. Have ye never read? Psalm 8, he references here. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way... 
He came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever, and presently, that means immediately, the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Now our sermon tonight will cover uh, the rest of chapter 21. I find this encounter with this fruitless fig tree very picturesque of the entire ordeal. Because we see in this chapter, and this is our title tonight, The House of Unripe Figs. The House of Unripe Figs. That, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 21, in that town they came upon called Bethphage. The literal rendering of that word Beth is house of, and then uh, you have Bethlehem, so that's the house of bread. Here it's Bethphage, it's the house of figs, or uh, it's also rendered the house of unripe figs. And I feel it is a fitting summary, whether Matthew intended to record that on purpose or not, I don't know. But I feel it is a fitting summary and title of this encounter between Jesus and Jewish leadership, the house of unripe figs. Yet it is an unfitting description of God's house. The house of unripe figs. Now, I lived in Washington for a period of time, short uh, at the end of high school, but a little longer before I became a teenager. And so I'm aware you have apples and cherries and they're the best. And nothing can touch the fruit. I have argued with New Yorkers that Washington's apples are better than New York's apples. But in Georgia, we have peaches. That's a big thing. Some people around here are just peachy. And I like that. I don't think a peach farm, though, would stay in business very long if it was full of decaying, dying, or dead peach trees. Uh, we took a trip to McDonough, Georgia, and went to pick peaches with my wife's father and some friends, and there's lots of peach trees and lots of peaches, and we came to a tree in the middle of the abundantly fruitful trees, and it was totally dead. There were no fruit, there was no, were no leaves, it was dried out, it was dead. And I remember asking my friend who was with me, he was an unsaved man, we're working with him, praying for him, and I remember asking him, I pointed to a tree over here which was fruitful, and I pointed to, then I pointed to the dead tree and say, which tree would you like to be like? Do you want to be like the fruitful one, or do you want to be like the dead one? And imagine going to a peach farm after reading or watching some fantastic advertisement, only to find that when you got there, it was an orchard of dead trees. It's disappointing, to say the least. And what if you went to a peach farm in peach season? I mean, open picking season, you pick and they had rows and rows of peach trees with leaves galore, but no peaches. Talk about a letdown. We want to pick peaches and eat them. Got a picture when I candidated at the church there in Georgia about two years ago of our little girl who was, who was sick tonight, but at that point was one and a half, and she was healthy as a peach. She had a peach. We have a picture of her with a peach about the size of her face. Digging into that thing. We want to dig into a peach and enjoy it. We don't want the promise of peaches to be disappointed by leaves only. Much like a house of unripe figs, a, par- a farm of unripe peaches would be a bummer. Uh, you picture a lady, there's a lady in our church who has blueberry bushes. And blueberry bushes help protein shakes taste less like cake batter and more like something worthwhile. 
And anyways, the, but imagine the, beast, the bushes, they start to leaf out and they start to blossom and the season gets closer, but there's no blueberries and the season comes, but there's no blueberries and there's leaves there, but there's no blueberries. That would be unpleasant for anybody. I bring this up for two reasons. One, we aren't super happy about unfruitful, unfruitful fruit trees. And two, God isn't too happy about them either. Yet how many churches are full of fruitful disciples only to have a fruitless dead tree in their midst? And how many Christians, the pastor mentioned the average Christian this morning, how many average Christians have leaves on their tree but no fruit? And how many churches promise much to the consumer by way of leaves, but they leave everything to be desired because they lack true God-given as we work through this tonight, and I'll do what I can to make haste, but I want you to ask yourself some questions, okay? One, am I a lifeless person among vibrant disciples? Am I yet dead in my sin? Am I alive in Christ or am I just the dead tree? And I may have prayed some prayer. I may have signed a card at an evangelistic rally. I may have gotten wet. I may have joined a church. I may have done all those things. But I, I'm, not, and I'm not trying to get anyone to doubt or question their salvation. That's not the intent of this text. God was dealing with the, the lack of fruit of his people. But it may be tonight there is an individual here that, that there, is, there is no life in you. And others may recognize it, but you may not. And you may need to ask yourself tonight, am I a, am I a lifeless tree in the midst of fruitful disciples? And you look at the lives of fruitful Christians around here that you've been around a long time, and you're starting to wonder that. Why don't I have what they have? Why does this seem more methodical to me and not life-giving like theirs? Second question, is the typical American church full of promises to the consumer, yet lacking the produce of Christ's gospel? Third question, is my life as a disciple as disappointing to God? Now, I'm talking about someone who's believed the gospel you know, and you strive to be a disciple, but ask yourself, is my life as a disciple as disappointing to God as a blueberry bush without blueberries? Is my house, is my family like a farm with unripe peaches? You say, man, you're a guest preacher and you're starting out on a gloomy note. Well, we'll get to where we're going if you'll hang on for the ride. But if we see this here, God is not pleased with people that are meant to have his life in them meant to produce his fruit abundantly, yet who are like a decaying, dying tree. And he's not pleased with churches who look productive, yet have no fruit. God is not for a house of unripe figs. Why not? Well, we saw Jesus cursed the fig trees. You see that in verses 17 through 20 there. What happened? He was hungry. He saw a fig tree. It had leaves. It had no figs. And so he cursed it in verse 19. Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth, henceforth forever and instantly it withered away. He cursed that fig tree and it immediately withered away. And why would Jesus do a thing like that? I had a substitute teacher in 10th grade who said, well, Jesus was a brat, just like that. He said, Jesus was a brat. And he gave this as an example. And I, I, frankly, I don't feel like that fits the narrative Matthew has been painting up to this point, but that was his opinion. Someone might suggest, well, maybe he was hangry. Have you ever gotten hangry? Say, so you would accuse Jesus. I didn't say that. I said, you might have thought that. 
But I do notice here he wanted to teach his disciples a lesson. And there was something bigger going on that this fig tree and its creator illustrated. And so when the disciples saw it, verse 20, they marveled how soon is the fig tree withered away. And then the next two verses, Jesus taught his disciples the power of unwavering, faith-filled asking in prayer. The fig tree was an illustration that, that he, he said in verse 21, that if you have faith and you don't doubt, you won't only do what was done to this fig tree and make it wither away immediately, but you'll look at this mountain and you will say, what did he say there in verse 21? He said, he, you can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the midst of the sea and it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. And his point was not to give a blank check to his disciples to go around and rearrange geography. And say, hey, Mount Rainier, hop in, you know, that's not Jesus' point with this text. His point was all things that they asked for in prayer, believing they would receive. They had immense ability at their disposal by faith and prayer to see God himself do incredible things. And it is incredible when we start to pray and seek for the things that God wants in prayer. I had a dear close friend of mine recently who's beginning this prayer plan and is just surprised by the work of God. But I want to tell you that God answers prayer when it's prayed according to his will. And we don't have time to get into it. You might, you might think, well, I asked for this or I asked for that and I believed I had faith but nothing happened. Or things didn't work my way. Well, I want to challenge you tonight. Whenever Jesus speaks of prayer here, there's a context to this. The, the, the Gospel of Matthew sets a context of what Jesus taught on prayer. If you'd go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And read Matthew chapter 6. And allow, allow, be a disciple in the prayer closet of the Son of God. And learn how to pray from Him. And, and then you will find prayer being answered and your life being fruitful. We don't have time to go back there. But I just want you to see that Jesus teaches prayer is powerful when disciples pray to their Father together. And ask Him for His will to be done in their lives. And ask for things they truly need. That's pretty much the sum total of what Jesus taught in prayer in Matthew 6. There's power in that kind of prayer among disciples, among a church. You're about to have your prayer revival. You should take this seriously. I, I'm serious. I'm a pastor. And I have people, too, that I am the shepherd. And prayer ought to be a serious thing in our life. Are we serious about it? Or do we view it as if it's a battery pack that we hook up to our lives for bad times or for special occasions? So why would Jesus teach a random lesson on prayer right here? And a bigger question, why did Jesus curse that fruitless fig tree? Well, would he do such to a fruitless person? Would he do such to a fruitless home? Would he do such to a fruitless church or a fruitless nation? And, and, and what does fruitless even look like? Well, to answer our questions, we'll have to see how he answered from questions, answered some questions from the chief priests and elders who saw him just cleanse the temple and heal the disease. And so when Jesus was come back into the temple, verse 23, and he's He's teaching there. The chief priests and elders approached him and they questioned his authority to do the things he was doing. And they asked two questions that really boiled down to one question, verse 23. Who gave you the right to do what you're doing? By, by whose authority do you do this? And I want to point out they had a right. In fact, they as the builders of God's house, as the shepherds of God's people, okay, they had a responsibility to vet those who came and taught in the temple. 
They had that responsibility, just as your pastor has that responsibility, as the shepherds of churches have that responsibility. It was their responsibility in the temple. And you might ask, well, didn't they let it get out of hand? The temple became big business and this commercialized crazy, and they were keeping people from prayer and from praise and keeping people from God. Well, we'll get to that. But nevertheless, they asked him of his authority, and they had that right. But did you notice in verse 24 and 25 that Jesus answered their questions with questions. In verse 24, he said, I'll ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I'll answer you. The baptism of John, where did it come from? Verse 25. Did it come from heaven? Did it come from men? You say, well, what's the baptism of John? Well, you go back to Matthew chapter 3, and you see John the Baptist there preaching in the wilderness of Judea by the river Jordan, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and scores and multitudes upon multitudes came out to him to this voice of, of one crying in the wilderness and they were baptized in Jordan confessing their sins in the river Jordan and these chief priests and elders they sent delegates of the Pharisees and Sadducees to check him out. It was obvious God was bringing people back to himself. And so the answer to Jesus' question, where did John get his authority? It should have been obvious to them yet they sought a diplomatic answer in verse 25. They didn't want to say from heaven. As Jesus would ask, why didn't you believe him? They did not believe John. But they didn't want to say, well, he got his authority of men because the people, verse 26, held John to be a prophet sent by God. So they answered, we can't tell. So Jesus says, I'll answer your question. If you'll answer mine, where did John get his authority? Their question, who gave you the right to do these things? His question, where did John get his authority? We don't know. So Jesus ain't going to play their game, is he? And I just want to point out, Jesus does not play games with men who want to get diplomatic with him. Some men think they can get away with diplomatic answers to the piercing questions of the Son of God. Well, we don't have to own up to our unbelief. And we don't have to upset the fruit basket of believers we can answer with diplomacy and get our way and slide under the radar. Yet Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, he does not let such men play their game. So what does this conversation have to do with the cursing of the fig tree? and the, What does the questioning of Jesus' authority and this diplomatic dancing have to do, uh, of answering this question, have to do with all this? Well, this conversation set up Jesus to remind these leaders of two things. And he's going to tell two stories. He, to remind them of a preacher who called them to produce the fruit that God wanted and to remind them of an age-old expectation and plan of God himself. So he told two stories. He told two parables that did this, that confronted their failure to produce fruit. That's what Jesus did. The first story was, you could say it like this, it was a tale of two sons in verses 28 through 32. You have a father, he has two sons, and he has a vineyard. He tells to his first son, he has a vineyard with grapes on it. And he tells his uh, grapes in it, and, and he tells his first son, hey, go work in my vineyard. And the first son says, no, I'm not used to that at all. Okay, that was sarcastic. I thought I could fit in around here with some sarcasm, but evidently you don't like it. Okay, anyways. Uh, this first son said, no. He said, no, I won't go. But then what did he do? He went. 
The second son, he tells this the second son, the same thing, the same command, the same imperative. He says, go work in my vineyard. And the second son says, I go, sir. That was respectful. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I don't know if he said it like that. I go, sir. But then he didn't, he didn't move. So Jesus asked the Pharisee, or asked these men, which of the two did what his father wanted him to do? And their answer was, the answer you would answer, the first son, obviously. Even though he said no, he went. He, he did obey. But even though the second son, though he said he would go, he did not go, so he did not obey. And who was the first son? Well, if you look at verse 31, it was the publicans, the tax collectors, and the harlots. It, were the pe- it was the people that, that the religious deemed were far from God, not chosen, no chance of the kingdom. But according to Jesus, those that said by their life, by the way they lived their life, I will not enter your kingdom, I will not repent. When they later repented, they entered into the kingdom of God before those who by their mouth profession said, I go, sir, but never moved an inch. How could this be? Well, when John came and preached to both groups in the way of righteousness, he preached righteousness. He prepared the way of the Lord. He spoke of a coming one who would baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire, and he would separate the righteous from the wicked, and he would gather the righteous into his barn, but he would burn the wicked with unquenchable fire. And the men who here claimed to be right with God did not believe John. And even after he told them, hear this, He told them in Matthew 3, verse 8, you better produce fruits that are befitting repentance. And don't begin to say, I was born a Jew. Is this sounding familiar? I was born into the right home. I was born into the right country. I was, I was, I was, I I go, sir, and I have all the external ducks in a row, but on the inside, there's no movement. On the inside, there's no true repentance, as Pastor preached about this morning. On the inside, there's no true desire to respond to the message of Jesus and your bankrupt spiritual condition. It's not there. See, fruitlessness, or fruitfulness, I should say, was this authentic repentance. When John came, he said, repent for the coming one's coming. He wanted people to turn from their sin and prepare their hearts for the Son of God. These... Religious people who had everything together on the outside had a choice to make. To be authentic with their faith in Jehovah or not. But they did not believe John. And they did not repent. The scum of society, the publicans and the harlots, repented. Hear me, that's called fruit. When a person responds to the message of God in repentance and faith, they own who they are. They're honest about who they are. It's not uh, repentance, is it? I can pick myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm going to do this thing. No, that's the attitude of a religious Pharisee, true Pharisee or a Sadducee or a man who, who thinks it's in themselves, who will not repent and acknowledge their poor in spirit. That's not what we're talking about, that you try to be good enough. It, it means you totally recognize that you're not good enough in the gospel. The good news is that the coming one has come and can help you. And can produce fruit in you that you could never produce. And frankly, believer, even since the first day you believed the gospel to now, you still can't produce the fruit of the gospel in your own life. You still need the gospel. It's not, it's not the porch. It's not the front door to the house. The gospel is the house. 
And never forget that you live inside the grace of God. And that's the only thing that keeps you where you ought to be. Mm. So even though these publicans and harlots, their life started out saying, I won't go. They later repented. And, and hear me, verse, or hear Jesus, verse 32. He said, verse 32 in the middle of the verse, he said, Ye, when you had seen it, you repented not afterward. You saw God producing fruit and you did not repent. You saw what God could do in a life when someone will just own who they are and receive God's message and yet you would not enter the kingdom. You would not believe John. They did not repent and believe. And when there's no repentance and there's no belief, that's called no fruit. Are you following this? Jesus then told a second story. Pastor, is this yours? Well, I don't know whose it is then. There it is. I'll have faith and not have COVID. (laughs) Or whatever else out there. So then Jesus told a second parable. He He told a story, we'll call this a tale of some wicked tenant farmers, a Some husbandmen. A tenant farmer is basically a person who lives on land owned by a landlord, and the landlord will contribute capital and equipment and land, and the tenant farmer, the husbandmen, will contribute labor, and they'll work for the landowner, and at times they'll contribute varying amounts of capital and management, but for the most part, a tenant farmer is someone who lives and works on land owned by another. So let's read from the lips of our Lord. Let's follow this. Stay with Jesus. He said in verse 33, there was a certain householder, a a landowner, which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen. He he got it completely ready. I mean, it was turnkey for these guys. And he went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, Well, they'll reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. Can I ask you something? Would you agree that these were wicked tenant farmers? Wicked husbandmen? Jesus even asked the chief priests and elders in verse 40, When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do to these husbandmen? And their answer was, well, he's going to miserably destroy those wicked men. And he's going to take that vineyard and he's going to let it out to other husbandmen. He's going to hire other husbandmen who, who rather than reject him, they will render him the fruits of that vineyard in their season. They believe that the landlord, the chief priests and elders believe the landlord should destroy those guys and give give this work to somebody else who would produce the fruits thereof. Did they even realize what they were saying? Because notice, they were the ones in charge of God's vineyard. The tenant farmers, the husbandmen were in charge of God's vineyard. God, throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, he saw his people as a vineyard. You go to Isaiah chapter 5, and you go to Psalm chapter 80 on on your own time. Uh, This is a a people that are students of the word. I thank God for that. I praise God for that. So uh, Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm chapter 80, you'll find that God planted a vineyard with full potential to produce fruit in Israel. 
And he let men, and he let kings, and he let priests rule over his vineyard, but his vineyard did not produce the fruit he wanted it to produce. What was that fruit? It was a people of God. You, go, you, are, you read the Bible. It was a people of God, humbly repentant and obedient to God, believing in his word. And he sent servants to collect fruit. He sent prophets and preachers, Old Testament prophets. He sent John the Baptist. And what did the leaders do? They killed them. And he sent his own son to these wicked husband men, to these chief priests and these scribes and elders. And his son asked, verse 42, as he references Psalm 118, an ancient prophecy, he asked, have you never read the Bible? Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Who were the builders of God's house? These men were. Who were the husbandmen of God's vineyard? Who was in the process of rejecting God's son? They were. God wanted fruit. He wanted repentant believers in his preachers. And ultimately in the coming one, his only begotten son. But they offered him no fruit. They were builders who rejected their foundation. They were trees that produced no fruit. They were the house of unripe figs. And just as Jesus cursed that fig tree in verse 19, he said in verse 43, look at it. He said, therefore say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Just as he said to that fig tree, no more. Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. You rejected the Son, and by your own mouth you deserve and will experience God's kingdom ripped out of your hands and given to a people producing the fruit thereof. Let me ask you, what people were producing fruit in repentance and faith? The people who were res- who responded to John the Baptist, the people who responded to Jesus Christ and who were following him, the people Jesus was just telling them how you can be fruitful in prayer. The people, the church of Jesus Christ, they were fruitful because they repented and believed the gospel. But these men were not because they did not. Watch this, verse 44. They would be individually responsible. Whosoever shall fall on this stone. And this is a reference, goes back all the way to Daniel and other places in the prophets. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. On whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. In other words, if a man in his life, he hears the message of the Son of God, and he trips over Jesus in rejecting him, he's going to mess his life up. And the man who persists in rejecting the Son of God, when he comes back in fiery wrath, he's going to grind that man to powder. See, Jesus cursed the fig tree because he would condemn the fruitless leaders of Israel. And really, if you read what happened in the Bible and history to Israel and her leaders after they rejected John and eventually Jesus and eventually Jesus' disciples in Acts, what Jesus said came true and Israel has never fully recovered. They were a house of unripe figs. And guess what? God brought the house down. God withered the fruitless tree. God judged the Christ rejectors. Hear me. A fruitless people withered away. Now, if you believe your Bible, God is not done with Israel. In fact, I don't think we should use the word replace unless the Bible uses the word replace. And if you go read in Romans 9 through 11 and you read about Acts and the spread of the gospel to the Jew first, God is not done with them. But by and large, as John said, Jesus came unto his own, his own received them not. They looked like they should produce fruit unto God, but they were a house of unripe figs. Now let's get to you. 
if we could boil down this to one statement for you. Remember this. A fruitless people will wither away. A fruitless people will wither away. A nation. Okay, so we're talking about a nation here. God deals with nations. Have you read the Bible? Yes. He deals with nations. A nation that is not full of people who have repented and believed the gospel will wither away. Less and less can it be said that America is a Christian nation, though founded as one. And more and more can it be said that the average man and woman in America is a miserable, sad, confused mess. A fruitless people will wither away. A nation not full of people who have repented and believed the gospel will wither away. God judges nations, but hear me, God judges individuals. A man or woman who will not repent and believe the gospel will break apart and eventually be destroyed. He or she may seem religious. They may be like the second son and say, I go, sir. I go, sir. They say it. I go, sir. They're like that second son and they seem to be respectful toward God and religion. But without repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, they're fruitless and a fruitless person will wither away. You say, well, I don't agree with that or don't be judgmental or don't judge. It's not right to judge. Friend, there's one judge. If you were in Sunday school here with Pastor this morning, you heard about him. He's, there's one judge by the name of Jesus Christ. And those who refuse him and his gospel of peace now mess their life up now. God isn't coming to make war with you. Or he did not come to make war with you. One day he will. And that's a war you will not win if you don't repent. But he came to bring peace. He rode in on a donkey. And those that reject him now won't have peace. And those who've rejected him, though fully and finally commit the blasphemy of the Spirit, as Pastor preached about, will be cast into a furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Not my words, Jesus's. He said, He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And hear me, God can send preacher after preacher and point you to his Son, and yet you convince yourself, I've said and done all the right things. I was born in America. I was raised in a Christian environment. I've done the whole baptism thing, and I attend church. I've been a number for fill-in-the-blank years. Yet someone begins to ask you, have you repented and believed the gospel? Or someone begins to ask you, what is the gospel doing in your heart and life? And you begin to hem-haw hem around the most important issue. A fruitless people wither away. A house of unripe figs will fall. Can we apply this to church for a second? A people that make church big business will fall. I've been listening. You mentioned a church this morning. I've been listening to a podcast about that. The rise and fall of so-and-so church. Why? Because... A fruitless people will wither away. And when a spiritual leader does not produce the fruit of the Spirit, how can he lead people to do that? People that commercialize Christianity. Listen, all external righteousness with internal corruption, all social good without belief of the gospel, a fruitless people will wither away. But on the flip side of that, I'm going to leave you encouraged prayerfully. A fruitful people will produce fruit. A fruitful people will produce fruit. You, you're there in Matthew 21 and verse 43. 
he spoke of his disciples, if we the best fit of this context, who he's talking about, he spoke of his disciples, the church, when he mentioned a nation bringing forth the fruits of the kingdom of God. And that tells me that a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, regardless of your background, regardless of where you came from, regardless of what has happened to you or the happenings you have caused in other people's lives, and you will, if you will repent, if you have repented and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are a person who produces the fruit of his kingdom. That's just who you are by nature. And you may struggle in life. You may struggle with your faith. You may struggle with questions. You may have seasons of difficulty. You may need taught and encouraged. You may need Jesus rebuke even that you are a people able to produce fruit. Able to produce God's fruit because you've repented and believed God's son. Disciple, please hear me tonight. Your life doesn't have to be a life of unripe figs. You don't have to walk through life. Oh, this is all terrible. That doesn't have to be you. And I'm not trying to be mean to people that are like that. That doesn't have to be you if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Man, God help us. We're so defeated. It's sick. I feel this in my own life. We get so discouraged and beat ourselves up, beat ourselves up, and it's like it's like we're runners in the marathon of race, and it's like we're down and and, and we tie our own shoes together before the gun goes off. You're you're not a fruitless people if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a fruitful people, and you don't have to be the fruitless fig tree. And you don't have to be the dead peach tree. You can be a budding fig tree, an abundant peach tree. Brother or sister, your family, think about this with your family. Your family doesn't have to be a house of unripe figs. I don't care. Well, I do care about your family and what family you came out of. But the circumstances of your life that define the home of your upbringing doesn't have to dictate the home that is now. It does not have to. Your family does not have to be a house of unripe figs. Sir, your children, they do not have to be atheists, agnostics, or whatever else is out there and shrivel up their life. Ma'am, your home doesn't have to be a diseased place that needs purged and TLC'd endlessly. And I get it, life's tough. We're raising three kids. It can be a challenge. It can, but it doesn't have to be a place that isn't real and authentic. Your house and family can be abundant. It can be full of the fruit of the Spirit from the lives of authentic disciples. And American churches don't have to commercialize or compromise sound doctrine to produce fruit. In fact, one could argue that the fruit churches produce by way of mass crowds, the consumers they welcome in aren't always the fruit God gives, but the product they manufacture. Brand Baptist Church, you don't have to be a house of unripe figs. You don't have to have a hum of activity that keeps people. Now, a hum of activity that's good is a good thing, but I believe there can be a hum of activity that keeps people from real discipleship and fellowship and worship. And we don't have to allow shallow expectations of people who claim to be Christian make this house a den of thieves. You don't have to have the appearance of a house of the living God yet produce zero repentant believing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That does not have to be you. God has no intent for his people to be a house of unripe figs. Not Berean Baptist Church, not your family, sir, and not your life as a disciple. Jesus told the disciples in John 15, you're over there, why don't you flip there? We've got to land this plane. He told the disciples in John 15 and verse 16, he said, you've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. I have chosen you, 
I have ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Hear me, every born-again believer, every gospel-centered family, every church of the living God has been chosen by God and ordained by God to produce lasting, abundant fruit. How does that happen? Well, we've seen how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by making God's house a smorgasbord of consumerism where the customer's always right. It doesn't happen by stifling true prayer and praise from every age, old and young, and every generation. It doesn't happen when we question Jesus and his words and his work and his authority in our lives and in our church. It doesn't happen when we say, as disciples, we say, I go, sir, but then we live like we just lied. It doesn't happen when truth, gospel truth, is preached from this pulpit and in those classrooms and in the settings of your home and in the settings of discipleship on 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights or whatever setting you have here. It doesn't happen when that truth is presented and we trip over it without repenting and following Jesus. It doesn't happen that way. So how does it happen? How do we, the fruitful people, produce the fruit of the kingdom of God? It's really as simple as Jesus' random lesson on prayer. He told them, don't doubt, have faith, ask together, receive. It's that simple. You're in John 15. In John 15, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus described himself as a vine, his disciples as branches. Branches produce zero fruit when detached from the vine. They struggle to produce fruit when they're close to the ground. They need lifted up. They are clean through the words of the vine. They're called to abide in him. And branches that abide in him bring forth much fruit. Without him they can do nothing. Well, what does it mean to abide in him? I want to bring forth fruit. Well, abiding in him is abiding in his words. Look at verse 7. When we abide in his words, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall, ye, plural, the church, the disciples, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Well, abiding leads to asking, leads to receiving. This sounds familiar, Matthew 21, but but what does it mean then to abide in his words? Well, you read the chapter here. It means keep his commandments. What were his commandments to his disciples in these chapters? And John, he told them, look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, the Christian life is as simple as believing the gospel and then living it out by loving other disciples. Listen, you can, and here, I'm an independent Baptist too. And I believe for my family... I have a responsibility before God to protect my family, to shepherd my church as well. And there are things that we need to apply by way of standards to protect people. But here's the deal. If you believe the gospel and love other disciples, you will produce fruit. And perhaps, perhaps, we, perhaps at times we, preachers of the gospel, have to harp on these issues to protect sheep because they won't just stay in the pasture of believing the gospel and authentically loving other disciples. But he said, Jesus said, if you abide here, If you obey me, you will ask what ye will and you'll bring forth much fruit. That if you as a church are one people and you pray together this fall, you will ask what ye will and you will receive it. And you'll produce much fruit. You will be, verse 11, you will be filled with his joy. Verse 16, he said you'll have fruit that remains. Verse 8, he said, you'll glorify your Father. You'll be truly known as Jesus' disciples. That's how we are fruitful. I just want to lay this out very simply for you. The path to a fruitful life. It begins when you repent and you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And you receive that forgiveness and you receive the Holy Ghost. Without an authentic response to the gospel, there is no fruit. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter who you are. 
churched, unchurched, doesn't matter. Without that response, there's no fruit. But then God calls you to get baptized. Why? To show the world I've believed. And unite with a church that bears his name. Now, let me ask you something. If you've believed, but you're not willing to be baptized, is that, and I, I can't look into a man's soul, but if someone believes the gospel, but they won't get baptized and they won't unite with the church of the living God that preaches his gospel, that preaches sound doctrine, it's almost like a fig tree with leaves, but no fruit. So how's the church supposed to know? that your profession is legitimate without that public declaration and a uniting of your life with a people who are to know you even in the darkest corners of your life and love you through them. And then, what do you do when you unite with that church? Well, you obey Christ's commands. You love other disciples. You obey Christ with those believers of that church. You love them. You pray with them regularly. You're for that work. And when you do that, you have joy. Only God produces through answered prayer. And that's a fruitful life. It's so simple. You know, I'd like to plant a few peach trees on the property back home. We've got about 18 acres there. If you want to go ahead and close your Bible, I'm going to land the plane. I'd like to plant a few peach trees on the property. And I was told we need two to make it work. Because cross-pollination from another tree has to happen for a tree to produce fruit and thrive. So I need more than one peach tree. Now, as I was walking through those rows of peach trees in McDonough, Georgia, and there's fruit everywhere, it's amazing what God's fruit trees can produce together with more than one. With two or three, or 200 or 300, or 2,000 or 3,000, doesn't matter how many fruit trees there are. God's fruit trees are designed to produce fruit when they are together. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, will you repent, believe, get baptized, and join this orchard? You say, I want to live a fruitful life. And that's great, you can do that, but you've got to submit to the way God designed you to live a fruitful life. You say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't want to submit to that kind of authority in my life. Okay, I go, sir. You're not going to have fruit. Disciple, here, here, can I just, to God's people here, you will never flourish and produce if you're not planted in this orchard under this husbandman. If you're in and out, in and out, how? Will you receive what you need here to thrive and be fruitful? How? See a peach tree in a peach orchard ripping itself up by its roots every other week and then coming back two weeks. How's it going to thrive? It's going to kill itself. Brilliant Baptist Church, abide in Jesus. Fellowship, pray. Please, be a fruitful house. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. It's the fruit that you desire to produce. The fruit you are producing here is of you. It's not of us. To get up tomorrow and abide in you and to live the life a disciple lives. It's a work of God in our lives that we respond to by faith. And I just ask you to help us with that. God bless this dear, wonderful church. It's wonderful pastor. Help them be fruitful. Help our people back home to be fruitful too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Pastor.